Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM in 2022. My name's Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. I decided to kick off 2022 on In Person with Paul with two blockbuster interviews with two journalists turned crime thriller writers. So look out for my chat with Frank Gardner released simultaneously with this. But for now, I'm chatting to Financial Times thriller critic Adam Labor. We're going to be talking about his new novel, Dohan Street, published by Head of Zeus and featuring Detective Balthazar Kovac of the Budapest Police. But first, a little bit of background. Adam is a long-time journalist, an expert on international finance and Eastern Europe. He lived for a long time in Hungary and wrote extensively about the country and the region, including the Yugoslav War and the collapse of communism. Among his non-fiction works is an authoritative biography of Slobodan Milosevic, but his first book was called Hitler's Secret Bankers, exploring the complicity of Switzerland in Nazi Germany. Adam also wrote Tower of Basel, about the Bank of International Settlement, a kind of central bank for central banks. And as we talk, you'll hear how these elements of the real world infuse Adam's fiction. Adam's first novel, though, was The Budapest Protocol, published in 2009 and that delves into the dark legacy of World War II and its effects on modern Europe, particularly Hungary. A debut which was a brilliant page-turner. Two fantastic series of thrillers followed. First of all, the Yala Jolet UN trilogy, and there's also a short story that goes with that too. And these deal with international affairs from the unique perspective of the United Nations, and it opens up a whole new way of looking at world events that we usually see through one superpower or another. Incidentally, I'll be putting the titles of the books in the program notes, um, which are available, obviously, with the broadcast, and you can look them up if you're interested in these titles. The second series is the Danube Blues Trilogy. Dohan Street is the conclusion to that. It features Detective Balthazar Kovac, and Adam Labor has again presented us with a unique perspective that of a gypsy detective working for the police department of Budapest in a city and a country we know very little about in the West, and it's all the more fascinating for that insight. Adam gives us a look into a world that we just don't get to see much of in the West, and certainly not in crime fiction. The Balthazar Kovacs trilogy is a rare thing. District 8, Gothel Square, Dohan Street. You won't have read anything quite like them before. The issues that underpin the stories are more relevant than ever. The books are part spy novel, part political thriller, police procedural and murder mystery. And for my money, that is an irresistible blend. And one last thing before I talk to Adam. His novels are intelligent and thought-provoking. They're also exceptionally good thrillers. And that's for three reasons. They're superbly well-written and plotted. The sense of location is vivid and it really comes alive off the page. And the characters, that's the most important thing, the characters are truly memorable. So let's chat to Adam. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Adam. Hello, Paul. Thanks so much for having me on, on the show. No, it's a pleasure. Um, you know what? I was looking at some of the questions you do for people because you're obviously a much more experienced interviewer than I am. And, and one of the points you made was ask simple questions. So I'm telling you now, I might have failed on that at a couple of points. So we'll see where we go. Okay. 
Absolutely. Um, I want to dive straight in, really, and start talking about um, history, the importance of history in your novels. Um, we're talking about Hungary and Budapest, the city, Dohan Street, and uh, the other two novels, Kosovo Square and um, District 8, are set, the, the Balthazar Kovac trilogy. Um, Budapest is a place so rich in history, and it's central to the stories uh, that you tell. And also, I'd imagine uh, the knowledge of history is also, of course, very relevant to your job as a journalist, which is why you went to Eastern Europe in the first place. You even quote uh, Faulkner at the start of the novel, the past is never dead. It's not even the past. And with history being so relevant to your work, could we start with that, please? So why is that quote so relevant? Well, yes, it comes from the many years that I spent living in Budapest. I first moved to Budapest in 1991 to be a foreign correspondent for The Independent. And then I uh, also worked for The Times and for The Economist. And one of the first things I felt there, especially in those early 90s, when uh, before the city was renovated, was the sheer weight of the history. You mm. would walk in downtown and you would see buildings that were basically they'd been untouched since the Second World War. Uh, and sometimes you'd see, for example, if you looked up, around a window, you'd see a spray of bullet holes where they gouged out the bricks right. and the cement. And you just knew that someone had been shooting out of that window, either in the Second World War or in 1956 in the uprising, someone had shot back and you could just feel it. I thought it was just a very, very haunted city uh, where so much had happened. You know, even within living memory, uh, it had been invaded by the Nazis, it had been invaded by the Russians and communism had collapsed and people were trying to understand what was this new world that they were dropped into. You know, people forget uh, now when you go to places like Hungary and Poland, Czech Republic or Slovakia, you go to the capital cities, Budapest mm -hmm. and Prague and Warsaw and Bratislava and downtown especially looks like any modern European city. You know, there's yeah, lovely right. renovated buildings, historic palaces, great restaurants, um, you know, really nice shops and everything. And they, they, you know, they look pleasant and modern and comfortable. But when communism collapsed, uh, they, they didn't look like that. And it took a long time to get there. And a whole generation had been brought up under a system. And that system evaporated. And then suddenly they're in this new world of capitalism, entrepreneurship, making your own way studying ideas that, you know, having your preconceptions challenged. And it was a massive psychological shock. And you could see uh, the way that that was still rippling through everyday life. And you still can see it now, you know, some of those old reflexes. And so that was the psychological side of it, but also the physical side of it. You could just, especially at night, you know, I used to, I used to still love walking around downtown Budapest at night. And mm -hmm. you can you can feel that these are haunted places, you know, within living memory, you've had Soviet, you know, Soviet troops marching around, tanks coming down these streets, Gestapo officers knocking on people's doors at midnight to take people away. Now, this isn't the stuff of some distant era. It's people have lived through that who are still alive. And you can just, if you have a sense for history and a sense for the atmosphere of a place, you could just feel it. Yeah, and I think you capture that um, that haunted feel brilliantly in the novels. It's all part of a very rich atmosphere and backdrop to the stories. I'm sure we're going to talk an awful lot more about the history of the place, but um, one thing that cropped up in, in what you were saying there is that I think fascinating, and it's about this um, 
becoming a democracy and the end of communism. When the wall fell, when the whole European, Eastern European thing started um, to become democratic, we kind of assumed that they would know what they were doing. Can you explain a little bit about having been brought up under that communist system, how it's just um, that there wasn't that innate understanding of democracy in a sense. These were people inventing this. How difficult was it at this time to actually look at this concept? Well, it's kind of dependent on which country you're talking about, because all of the countries in Central Europe, they get lumped together as, yes, as right. you know, the Soviet bloc, but they have very, very different histories. Mm. So Hungary... Czechoslovakia, as it was, and Poland, for example, had a kind of collective folk memory of degrees of democracy before the Second World War, right. after the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. No, Hungary uh, in the 1930s was ruled under Admiral Horthy. So he was an authoritarian conservative nationalist, but there were aspects of de democracy to that regime. Uh, although it went into alliance with Hitler during the war, but uh, there was some, you know, there was some sense of popular representation there. Same in Czechoslovakia, same in Poland. They weren't full democracies like we'd recognise as uh, as a democracy nowadays, but mm -hmm. there was the democratic tendencies there, competing with authoritarian tendencies and old style, you know, hangovers from the old style feudalism. So for those countries, the transition to democracy was a little bit easier. And also psychologically, they'd always consider themselves part of Western Europe. You know, if you're in Budapest or you're in Prague, you know, if you're in Prague, you say, oh, we're in Eastern Europe. We'll say, well, no, actually, we're quite far west of Vienna. Right. Where yeah, Prague yeah. Uh, and same in Warsaw and Budapest. But they, you don't say you're in Eastern Europe. You say we're in Central Europe. So there's this mindset. It's slightly different to uh, say if you're in Kiev then, or if you're in Bucharest. You know, the, the experience of, Bucharest, of Romania between the wars is quite different yes, to that of, course, of yeah. Hungary and Czechoslovakia. So it kind of depends on what was their pre-war history. Yeah, I think I probably could have been a bit more specific there, couldn't I? But yeah, I think the enormous damage had been done by the communist regimes. Uh, and it was damage to uh, damage on multiple levels. Firstly, the middle class had been uh, eradicated, not not mm -hmm. eradicated physically. And you know, you still would find doctors and teachers and lawyers, people from the professions, but as a kind of a political motor of the society and of and a vehicle for change that didn't really exist. So uh, that that had done enormous damage. The concept of the rule of property of accountability among politicians, all of these things uh, were, were gone, you know, different parties, the idea that you could disagree on a specific issue but still be yeah, a yeah. patriotic citizen, that had all vanished. So it took quite a while, and I think that's a process that Central Europe is still going through now to come back to a full... Uh, you know, the, the, these are democracies, you know, they're, they're elected governments... Uh, in that sense, there's universal franchise. People can demonstrate the borders mm. around them. But still, uh, the legacy of communism is still there. Yeah, what we call these are liberal democracies. I'm, I'm not too sure that's a valid term in a sense that I think you've either got democracy or you haven't. And we, we're struggling with it in the West, let alone in Eastern Europe. But I was kind of thinking about how um, the regimes and things 
colour people's ability to get back to democracy, and that, that's what you've just been talking about. But this goes back to there's a kind of blurred boundary between fiction and history um, in the sense that all history is a kind of interpretation or it's based on memory. It's not a, it's not a fixed thing, whatever we think. But in this particular case, you have the communist regime. Tell us a little bit about the state and history and rewriting it, if you like. Well, this, uh, under, under, his under state, communism. Under Sorry, I'm talking about um, Hungary in particular. I, was thinking, I mean, for instance, 1956, how that would be rewritten. Well, under communism, 1956, you know, the uprising against the communist regime and the subsequent uh, invasion by Russia. Well, I mean, we say invasion, but more of a reinvasion because, yeah. you know, Hungary was already part of the Warsaw Pact and occupied by the Soviet Union. But the crushing of the revolution was was portrayed purely as a counter-revolution, that these were dark forces that wanted yes. to destroy the workers' and peasants' state, which was an innate vehicle for social and economic and political justice. So, you know, obviously that, that was a nonsense. And then once communism went, uh, they, you know, the, the whole era was reassessed uh, and it, and then it, and then it goes the other way, and it was you know portrayed as as a valiant uprising against the communist regime, you know which it was, but also at the same time you know after a while you know the pendulum swings back to the centre, and you can say well yeah it was, but also the fact is that most people did not fight in 1956. Uh, you know, the the majority of people stayed at home to see what was going to happen. Yeah, yeah right. So I'm not, yeah. I'm not judging that either way, but it mm. wasn't a full-on nationwide uprising of hundreds of thousands of people. No, some, a lot of people fought, a lot of people didn't fight. Mm. So it's a question of evaluating that. I always remember a friend of mine saying to me, you know, as communism was collapsing in the late 1980s, it didn't just collapse out. No, we think it just vanished, collapsed overnight. Yes. But obviously there was it was building up to that for several years. Um, the teacher saying, "Well, I don't, I can't teach you what happened in 1956 because I don't know what I'm supposed to say you know, mm-hmm. anymore." Yeah. Oh, sorry. Maybe that was actually after. Maybe that was around 1990. Right. After just yeah. Collapse. I, I can't. We can't. I can't teach you 1956 because no, nobody knows what you know what we're supposed to teach you about that anymore. So yeah. it's kind of hanging there in a vacuum. Now, I think this is interesting because this gets to the character of the place and the people uh, through these questions about how it was in the past. I mean. And that really underpins the novels and gives real depth to the stories, to the modern stories and how they unfold in the novels. I'm curious, in a sense, about Hungarian understanding of history, if you like, because it goes to character and how people react in the stories and how they think about things. In the sense that, for instance, you could argue that in Britain we have a kind of nostalgic view of history and we still have a very benign view of colonialism and things like that, for instance. Um, you could argue that in Germany or Japan, for instance, the 20th century history is a warning and they, they treat it in a totally different way. I'm just curious how the Hungarians see history in a sense. Does that make uh, sense? Yeah, well, I think Hungary is a very polarised society um, right. between uh, what you might call the sort of uh, urban liberals and uh, the countryside. I mean, these are, you know, this is very general, broad brush mm, distinction, mm. but there's two quite distinct worldviews. So it depends who your worldview is of. So it depends what your worldview is. So it's a battlefield. History in Hungary is an absolute battlefield. You know, who was responsible uh, for the Holocaust in Hungary, in mm. which you know, more than 
half a million Hungarian Jews were killed. Now, the, the, the Germans invaded in 19, March 1944. I mean, this is one of the themes that uh, I deal with in Doha. Yes, it is, yeah. And uh, until then, most Hungarian Jews were fairly safe, and that was one reason why the Germans invaded, because Hungary report refused to deport its Jews, mm-hmm. or it put Jewish men on labour service on the Eastern Front, and most of them were killed, a lot of them by their own officers. But uh, the vast majority of the Hungarian Jewish community was safe. And then when the Germans came in, the whole apparatus of the Hungarian state was mobilised to deport the Jews to Auschwitz in incredible speed, you know, in less than two months. You know, it was, and it couldn't have happened without the help of the Hungarian state. But it happened because the Germans invaded and told them to do it. So whose fault is it? Is it, you know, a Hungarian nationalist, more conservative nationalist type person would say Jews were safe until the Germans came and it's the Germans' fault. Someone with a more sceptical view of that would say, well, hold on a minute. Uh, even the Germans said, we can't believe how helpful the Hungarians are in, being, in, in deporting hundreds of thousands of their own citizens. So, you know, I've, I lean to the latter view. Yeah. Without the help of the Hungarian state, it wouldn't have happened if the Hungarian state had said, uh, no, we're not going to do that, actually, like they did in Bulgaria. Then a lot more people would, and their descendants would be alive today. So that's mm-hmm. the kind of battleground that you see. Um, or they'll say, well, Admiral Horty saved the Jews of Budapest. You know, and it's true that a lot of the Jews of Budapest were not deported, uh, at least until the arrow-crossed Hungarian Nazis took over in October yeah, right. 19, uh, 1944. But, yeah, so if he saved the Jews of Budapest by stopping the deportations, then why didn't he save the Jews of the countryside? Yeah. So everything is a battleground. You know, it's like a, you know, they, one side says this, one side says that. And it's not, uh, but I mean, it, at least that conversation is happening now, you know, and it's a real right. a lively conversation with many historians picking up, you know, and examining it from different perspectives and the, and the debate is happening. So that's very important. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, it's um, interesting that there's debate in places where, as we've already sort of established with communism, there wasn't much room for debate. I think I agree. You know, one thing that stands out about this very much is that the deportation of Jews from Hungary didn't start until 1944 in that that major thing, that mega push for half a million people. But the point is the enthusiasm. I mean, if you look at, for instance, Nazi Germany and you look at Berlin, people might think that the, the if they don't know the history, that the Germans cleared out the Jewish population very quickly. They didn't. It wasn't. Oh, they didn't. Not, not with the efficiency, for instance, that obviously happened in this terrible um, pogrom in in um, Hungary. No, they 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 they, they didn't. Uh, and but in in Hungary, it was it, it was yeah, extremely efficient. And and the and the Hungarian state. Well, you know, when the Germans invaded Hungary, it wasn't like Poland, where it's mass destruction mm. and slaughter and turning everyone into slaves and you know, life in Warsaw or Łódź or where Krakow was mm-hmm. very, very difficult. Now, Hungary kept a Hungarian government. I mean, Hungary was an ally, so they yeah. had to do this delicate balancing act. They didn't destroy the Hungarian state. And, so, and history shows that they needed it to carry out the deportations of the Jews. It's curious, you know, because I, I kind of wonder myself about how much you can talk about a population and a nation being uh, the result of its own actions, if you like, and then... When we talk about Hungary, we look at there was the Nazis, there was the communists. Before that, there was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, of course, as well. 
it's a curious question about how much of that is external influence and how much of it is actually internal influence. Um, yeah, and I think the, the issue is that the external influence causes the internal influence. Mm. So you, you can see in the parts of Europe that were formerly or for longer were parts of the Ottoman Empire, like Romania, yeah. Serbia, Bosnia, there's much less democratic tradition before the Second World War than the parts of uh, Europe that were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, where they had they had parliaments, uh, they had some sense of popular representation, not as we have now, but there was, you know, there was something there. There was some accountability, some democratic mechanisms. Uh, so it's a very different experience. You know, the external experience makes the internal experience. Yeah, right. I see what you're saying. So I don't want to get away totally from the idea we're talking about your thrillers, uh, mm-hmm. your, your novels. And um, But there's a curious thing about when, when somebody writes a book, I think, like yours, which is so set in place and time and also history, is that um, we're talking about things that are sound very dark, and they are very dark. This is, a, this is a brutal history in a sense, but it comes from a sense of love. I mean, when you actually went to the place, I assume that you actually fell in love with the place, if you like, because I think that very much comes across in your novels. Completely, yeah. That's why I... I... I stayed there and lived there and worked there and tried to understand the society. Yeah, I thought it was an incredible city, Budapest. I, mean, I had a, an amazing time. Now, I, I travelled a bit in Eastern Europe before, but I hadn't, yes. I hadn't been anywhere like this. Firstly, the physical beauty of the place, the way that it's def- so clearly defined by the Danube. Mm. You, know, you, go to, you hear about the Blue Danube and you go to Vienna and, the, and the, you know, it sort of shunted aside the Danube through it. Uh, obscure suburb, you know, whereas in Budapest, the whole city is defined by the river. Yes, and Kovac's investigations take him either side of the river, and it's a very different environment he steps into when that happens. Mm. Uh, it's, it's stunningly beautiful, even the bridges are beautiful. So I just thought it was extraordinary. I still remember that first <coughs> day, the first time I went there, actually, was in November 1990 to do a travel piece for Elle magazine. Right, and just walking out in the morning and seeing the mist rise over the city and walk across the chain bridge, the beautiful bridge that was actually designed by Adam Clark, and I thought that looks a bit like Hammersmith Bridge, and that's because the same man built those bridges. Yeah, and you know, walking across into Pest and just seeing these incredible buildings that were so dilapidated and having that immediate sense, oh my gosh, so much has happened here. So, yeah, and then seeing that change. And the Hungarians were very friendly to me. I had a great time there. Was it also a kind of haven? Because you, you, well, for instance, one of the things you were reporting on during the coming years was obviously the war in Yugoslavia. Yes, was, it was, was very this... much a haven. Yeah. And that was, a, that was an interesting thing because, of, especially when Yugoslavia collapsed and there, and there was a border, you know, you couldn't travel between... Serbia and Croatia right. of the war. So people used to come through Budapest all the time. And Budapest kind of became the, you know, like the the, the, the neutral haven. So lots of journalists were coming right. through all the time. But for me, it was, yeah, it, I was very well placed because I spent some time reporting on Yugoslavia and, and on the war. And you could, you know, take a train to um, to Belgrade and you could take, or you could take a train to Zagreb. And yeah, it, it was it, it was a place of it, it was a haven. It was a haven as well for for lots of refugees. Yes, you know, I people, see. Right, people who came up from from Yugoslavia came into Hungary. Yeah. And what these was are- interesting, but was that 
uh, it was next door, you know, right. in Croatia. There was a town called Osijek, which used to be an Austro-Hungarian town. Right. Called Aisak, which was being bombarded all the time. So, for example, uh, I went there in December 1991. And you know, I was in and out of the place quite a lot. But when I came back to Hungary, the Hungarians, they weren't, they weren't that interested. You know, I'd say, right. look, this, this is just across the border. This is down the road. Mm. Uh, they, 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 weren't, they weren't terrible. The ones I spoke to, they, I don't know whether they were in kind of denial or they were scared because it was so nearby. But yeah. you know, it was on the news a lot. But average, you know, especially younger Hungarians, they, they, they weren't that interested. Right. Somehow it just didn't sink on. in. No, maybe not. Yeah. Curious, yeah. isn't it? And, of course, these are part of the issues that feed into your books anyway. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Detective Kovac. Um, he's got that Marlowe-esque kind of quality, the sort of um, central core of integrity, if you like. Um, and, but unlike Bernie Gunther of the Philip Kerr novels, you know, he's not an ordinary man in a situation that becomes very complex and very difficult and that has to face these issues around um, corruption and prejudice and so on. It, he actually is of gypsy descent, and that yes. gives him this this added factor. He starts on the back foot, if you like, in a sense. So for many Hungarians, he's already an outsider. So what was it that led you to this character, this background? Because he has um, some shady elements in the family too, and that's another factor. He's caught between his family and the police. Yes, well, for various reasons. Firstly, I've done a lot of reporting on... Uh, on the Gypsy and Roma community in Eastern Europe and Central Europe over the years, and I became very interested in it. It's like a sort of parallel society that living alongside, you know, among but still quite separate, mm. uh, separate, separately regarded by Czechs and Poles and Hungarians, and also they regard themselves quite separately. I always remember seeing a TV interview with a. A gypsy guy when he was talking, you know, in Hungary, speaking Hungarian, he's talking about the Hungarians, you know, the Majorok, the Hungarians. Yeah, I think right. that's interesting. I mean, you live in Hungary, you're a Hungarian mm. citizen, but you talk about the Hungarians. So that that gulf. So and I did lots of stories about the way that they were excluded, you know, the town in Czech Republic building a wall against the gypsy community. And some very sad stories about young gypsy women who had been sterilized against their will. Mm. They've been given cesarean sections, and when they woke up to find they'd been sterilized and were absolutely devastated. No, and that was in the early 2000s, you know, not yeah, right, not not 30 or not 40 ancient years history, ago. no, it was still happening. Mm. So, I became very interested in that world, and but also I wanted to write a detective series for a while in Budapest, you know, as I got to know the city. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's great. Have it, if you have a gypsy cop, you have an instant double in a conflict. You know, conflict drives drama, to put yeah. my writer's hat on. Inner conflict drives drama most of all. And here's double in a conflict. And mm. we, you know, and I think, okay, let's we'll have him that he's from a, a criminal family. His dad and brothers are pimps. Uh, his dad's disowned him because he's become a policeman. Yeah. And his... Um, but he's, you know, got a very solid inner core of integrity. He doesn't want to go down that path. But, of course, the other police are suspicious of him because he's a cop. I also spent some time with gypsy uh, cops. I went out mm-hmm. on patrol with them. I interviewed them. So, uh, and, then, and then, I mean, none of them that I spoke to came from a criminal family, but they, several of them had said 
the uh, you know their parents were saying, well, actually, we want you to you know leave school when you're 15 or 16 and start work, not yeah, go to right. college or you know go into a profession. Mm. More so, about keeping the traditions going, in a sense, yeah. the traditional way of life. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, as a kind of defense mechanism. So I thought that was interesting. You know, he had lots of potential here. The other thing is he also gives you a way into two sides of an issue, if you like. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I get... wanted to write something about Gypsy Society. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. So was he a way into the series then? Was this where the novel started? Was it Was it with him? Was it with COVID? Yes, it was with him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then there's a question of where and when. And that began in, sept- uh, in September, summer, September 2015 in the refugee crisis. Uh, I, where I was a reporter, just you know, writing about what was going on, and yeah. went to Kelaty Station, which is one of the main train stations in Budapest, main yes. international train stations. I went there quite a lot uh, to report, and I and I thought, okay, this is incredible. You know, this train station has been turned into a refugee camp. Mm. It was the most amazing thing, ever. and in, you know, you'd see in the morning. Know, literally hundreds, probably thousands, actually, around in the station around the area, right. of people sleeping out rough, you know, trying to get to the west. And then the people, the commuter trains would come in, and you'd see these well-dressed men and women sort of literally picking a path over through yeah, sleeping yeah. Syrians and Afghans, you know, going across the road to take the bus to work. So I thought, okay, this, you know, this is it. You've got you no, know, this is your start. So a Syrian refugee is murdered. Balthazar Kovac is on the case and discover, you know, starts to unpeel a much broader conspiracy about bringing refugees, uh, migrants and terrorists through Europe. Great. That's a good way to get into this, actually, because that's the first book. And then we've got uh, the second book, Kossuth Square, about a murder in a brothel of uh, an Arab businessman. And that connects back to Kovac's brother and leads to the highest levels of government as well. Tell us second a little book bit. is a follow-on from the first book, yeah, but the yeah. third book is, is a standalone story. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about Dohan Street, please. Well, Dohan Street starts when uh, Balthazar's neighbour, called Ava Nene, Nene is auntie, you know, everyone in Hungary calls um, friends and family uh, auntie if they're a lady. Right. Uh, Ava Nene knocks on his door at seven o'clock in the morning and her cousin, her young cousin, or, uh, you know, second or third cousin, has come to Hungary to investigate the archives of the Jewish Museum to find out what happened to the uh, assets of the Jews that were killed in the Holocaust and he's disappeared. Mm-hmm. He's gone. And then it turns out that he'd been, you know, they find, uh, I won't give too much of the details away, but it turns out he'd been followed you know, yes. there's a, a lot of dark things going on and he's disappeared and it seems that he's disappeared uh, because he's been asking too many questions. So that's that's the way in to the story of, uh, and I love, you know, one thing I like about the book is that Amy Naini is, is not just a, a kind of a foil for the plot. She actually mm-hmm. turns out to have an enormous amount of agency uh, this little old lady who you think yes, is right. a sweet old lady. Actually, she's uh, there's a lot more to her than that. So I, th- I don't want to say too much to the big giveaway the plot, but, uh, you know, I try very much to make all of my women characters, a lot of women characters yes. in my books, to give them, you know, 
depth and complexity in a lot of agency that they, things happen to them. They don't make, uh, sorry, rather than things happen to them, they make things happen. Yes, absolutely. I will never, <laughs> ever uh, start a crime book with the body of a dead young woman. I get sent so many of these books to review. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Actually, I, I, I think I'm it was. up with it. Yeah, I think I was talking to uh, Laura Lippman and she said um, the body's often the MacGuffin. And that, yeah, that's exactly. a terrible thought, really. I mean, if you start with yeah. that. Yeah. I, I, um, just... I really do think it's important to explore issues of domestic um, violence and femicide and so on, but but not in this kind of glorified thriller way yeah, know. You know, that, that know. just I makes it a glossy story. I mean, that's just saying, oh, a brutal murder, a young woman found brutally murdered. Think, well, gosh, is that the best you can do? I mean, I've just had that book about 30 times through my letterbox this year. Yeah. I mean, come on, there's other stories, there's other plot lines. But anyway, we're, uh, moving away slightly. Slight, so, slight digression, yes. Yeah, so I I mean, and that's, that's what I wanted to use mm. to kind of unpeel what happened Wait. in 1944. Yes. Like we talked about earlier and how that still shapes Hungarian society today. That trauma is still there. Well, before we totally move away from the subject, I would like to just say, I know there's an essay that you wrote on this uh, on your website, so people can have a look at that. But to go back to this idea of um, strong female characters, I just want to say something about that before we move on. So you mentioned the little old lady who would be uh, kind of a background character in most thrillers but she's actually crucial at times in the plot here. Um, and as, as you say, have agency. Then there's Miklos and Oehel, and their story is fundamental to the narrative. And we have one of my favourite characters, and that's, um, although this is Kovac's story, of course, and he's the detective, crucial is investigative journalist Susa Barksy as well. And she's a really feisty, determined reporter. We're talking about characters in general, though. Um... Do the characters, I mean, how much agency do they have? Do they actually kind of take over as you're writing, if you like? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's very, it's very important that, that they come alive yeah. and they start, you know, they start doing things. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think you can feel that as a reader. Yeah. That old thing about, you know, your characters come alive, then, uh, yeah, that's, that's for sure. That's true. Yeah. And you mentioned the, the Holocaust in Hungary. What is also important in the book, of course, and here's where I'm going to murder Hungarian again, is the Poraimus, which is the Gypsy yes. Holocaust. Yeah, that's, and, that's a Roma word. Yeah, that's not a Hungarian yeah. one. And no, of course it is, yes. But yeah, right. that's, I mean, that was, a, that was a learning process for me as well, because I've always right. known that, that lots of uh, no, Roma uh, and lots of Gypsy people were killed by the Nazis. And often they did horrible experiments on them as well. But there's some things that I learned that I hadn't known. You know, for example, there was in, in uh, 1944, May, I think it was, the gypsies who'd been sent to Auschwitz uh, started, uh, had a kind of uprising, a mini yes. uprising, and attacked the SS guards with woods, you know, bits of woods and bits of sticks, and, and just you know, did whatever they could to mm. fight back. Oh, remarkable. And it's almost unknown episode. Um, and also, the, because the, when they were got off the trains and they refused to be separated from their children and they just went berserk, they were allowed to stay together in mm. the camp. There was, they called it the, the family camp at Auschwitz. And the families were allowed to stay together before they were killed. 
So <clears throat> this, I, I thought these were very in, uh, interesting aspects, uh, if that's the right word, of the Paramus or the broader Nazi genocide that uh, people just simply don't know about. So I wanted mm. to explore that as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's <clears throat> it's horrifying, but it is um, it's fascinating to find these details out. Because I thought for a while we were getting more stories, um, and I think we are, but uh, there was also, obviously, of course, the first thing is that after the war, there was a big, um, there was a push, yeah, it would be fair to say that, to actually forget, to hide. I mean, nobody wanted to talk about returning homes to Jewish or gypsy people who'd had them taken off them, which, again, of course, is one of the elements of your story. I mean, only yesterday there was a French woman in court trying to get back a family painting which the Nazis stole under the guise of a so-called auction uh, during the war. And even now, it, it's difficult to get people to accept the past and to uh, make reparations, basically. And, of course, she has the requisite um, provenance and so on. And this yeah. is... Sorry, go on. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, this is a massive issue of what... Yeah. You know, and it's in the book, oh, of course. What happened to all, the, all, those, all that wealth that was, that was taken? Yeah. Yeah, and all those goods that were appropriated, you know, <clears throat> some of which have ended up in museums and people are still trying to get them back. You know, there's a good film about this called The Woman in Gold with Hammond. That's right. Yeah, it's a very good film. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put that in the programme notes. There's another thing that goes with this in a sense as well, which is a central hypocrisy to this whole thing, um, which is very human, but um, it's business as usual. You know, during the war, we were dealing with the Nazi bankers. And after the war, we were dealing with putting industrialists back in place. And there's a, a lot of companies across Europe, particularly in Germany. Some of them have new names now, but they're the same firms that were involved in, in the camps and, and the Nazi war machine in the... Uh... Yes, absolutely. After the Second World War, the Allies had a massive push to uh, re, you know, bring the former industrialists. You know, They went to... They went to prison for a little while, for a few years, but the people that ran IG Farben, for example, which made Zyklon B, the gas that was used in the camps, and IG Farben actually had its own corporate com concentration camp at Auschwitz called Monowitz, where yeah. they used to make artificial rubber. All of these people were war criminals and convicted of war crimes. They were nearly all let out uh, in the early 1950s by John McCloy, who was uh, essentially the governor of, of right. New West Germany because of the Cold War, they wanted to rebuild the German economy. They were barely punished. You know, they, they were uh, Nazi, former Nazi SS and intelligence officers were recruited into the new German West intelligence service, um, you know, let alone all the doctors and teachers and everyday functionaries that just resume their life as normal. So, yeah, when you look at the post-war um, um, trials, it's amazing how quickly people want to be rid of them. Yeah. yeah across exactly. Europe, you know. Yeah. It's, I suppose it's a little bit worrying that, that, that today, for instance, that perhaps um, the lying that, that, I mean, if they'd been caught out in this lie, if, if we'd known that the bankers in Germany were being talked to by our people at the same time, during the middle of a war, you assume that that would cause a ruckus. I'm not entirely sure that in the cynical age and a less caring age, we care so much about corruption and lying. You know, the, one of the things about Nazism and, and about totalitarianism is this kind of language that they use to mask what they do. And I'm not too sure we're even bothered by whether we are masking the language these days or not. 
Yeah, I think the you know the, the battle for the battle for language, the battle for meaning is 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 absolutely still continuing. Mm. Yeah, because if you control the language, you control people's thought processes, and then you control everything. Yeah, absolutely. But the hypocrisy in international affairs. I mean, if you take Afghanistan for instance, that's an abject failure on our part. But if you look at it, the Russians were doing what they could to get back in with the Taliban, despite the history there, and the Taliban are happily talking to. The Chinese, despite the situation that's going on with the Ouija in China, it almost becomes irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it is. Uh, I th- the the lesson is is that economic interests all, always triumph. Yeah, um, and that's one of the things that I I try to look at in Doham Street. I mean, I, yes. I, I do want to say that it, it's a, it's a novel, it's a thriller, and it's written yes. as a thriller. So it, this, these are the themes of the backdrop. But no, I hope it's a you no know, an, an engrossing story. But yeah, these these kind of themes are things that I want to you know that I talk about the economic, the continuity of economic interests, the great betrayal of 1944, you know, of what happened to the uh, of what happened to Hungarian Jews that thought they were loyal citizens of that country, what happened to their wealth and to their assets, to their shops and to their factories and everything, uh, and how that still ripples through the decades, years on. Yeah, I like to talk about the issues behind the books, and I suppose sometimes I can get away a little bit from the idea that it is um, an entertaining thriller, and I have to say, your books are absolutely entertaining thrillers. In fact, let me just say something here. I picked up this quote the other day from um, Maxim Jakubowski, who uh, is an eminent critic, and Dohan Street was his introduction to your work. So he said, A political and a crime thriller, with more than a touch of the police procedural. This is a most rewarding read. And for me, the discovery of an author and voice worthy of the genre's leading ranks. I can only say I totally agree with that. So your fictional Israeli prime minister is about to visit Hungary, and that adds um, impetus to the investigation into Elad Harari's death. And the previous Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, did in fact visit Hungary, I think. Yes, yeah, he, uh, Netanyahu uh, uh, was quite... Uh, close friends with well i don't know if you said if it was a genuine friendship but he was close to victor orban who's the current prime minister of hungary yeah yeah israel and hungary are, uh, have very good relations actually yeah so where does the treatment of jewish people in uh, hungary and uh, orban's extreme right-wing sort of views uh, fit with this well i wouldn't say orban's government was an extreme right-wing government no I'll, no i disagree with you okay, on that one on. yeah yeah, I might have um, might let my lefty credentials slip a little bit there. Um, I should be much more careful with the use of the word extremist. Yeah, and uh, you know, and Hungary. How would you categorise it then? Uh, well, hung- Hungary nowadays it, uh, has got you know the biggest liveliest Jewish community in Eastern Central right. Europe because a hundred thousand Jews still st- uh, survived uh, the Holocaust, and their descendants are still there. So it was, you know. Uh, no, I think that's one of the things that that we have to think about also when we talk about Jewish life in Eastern Europe. That's you know that's the liveliest Jewish right. community that there is in the region because the, one of the, the ghettos, people are, a lot of people are still alive in the ghettos in 1944. So yeah, Hungary is struggling with issues to you know to overcome its past, but at the same time, there's a very lively Jewish community there. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's more complex. Picture. Oh, no, absolutely. I know that's one of the things about asking these questions. You kind of traduce it to some extent. 
But of course, there are issues about gay rights and that as well. And there are issues about women's rights, too, which are part of uh, the picture, of course, in modern day Hungary. Um, we talked about the unique nature of Hungary. I hope that comes across a little bit anyway in the way we've talked about this. But And they're the backdrop to the novels. But the issues that you back it, and I, I take your point, this is a thriller, by the way. Yes, I do accept that. And it's a very exciting thriller. Um, I love the Thank series. You. I love the UN series that came before this as well. But um, I did want to look at the issues that, that come in behind because, um, well, you, you say how important this is. I mean, I'm, my way of looking at this was that um, you deal with sexism and racism and corruption and human trafficking and terrorism and the issue of migration, of course, which became such a big issue uh, in Europe. Is Hungary, in a sense, a microcosm of the world's slash European problems, if you like, perhaps a sort of a pinch point for universal issues? I think, in a sense, it always has been because of its situation. Yes, right. In, uh, you know, its physical situation. I mean, I think it was Bismarck said geography makes history. Mm. So it's always been in the centre of Europe. So it's been invaded by the Russians, it's been invaded by the Turks, you know, hundreds of years ago it was invaded by the Mongols. It's always been a stopping point from, you know, the waves from the east to going to the west. And so it's, yeah, it's the broader things that are happening often, you know, become catalyzed there. So we saw that most of all in the refugee crisis, for sure. Yeah. Mm. And issues and money um, cross boundaries. And this is where I could sound a little bit grand. I mean, stop me if I'm wrong, but yeah. if we look at your trilogy and we look at, oh, this is a sort of a standalone, actually, to be fair. But if we look at your, these books and we also look at the UN books, the Yol Azulai books, um, you tackle issues not from a national perspective there, but from an international perspective. It's rare to see such important issues tackled um, from that international perspective rather than some kind of national or conflicting boundaries just related to the superpowers, for instance. Um, and that follows on from your books, some of your books anyway, which are about financial issues, and your journalism is also about financial issues. I'm just wondering, in a sense, does your fiction carry this kind of um, chronicle of geopolitics that, in a sense, kind of um, g goes to how the world works? Yeah, that's one of the things that always interests me, is how does the world really work? And it, that goes back to my second non-fiction book, which is called Hitler's Secret Bankers, right. which I first published in the 90, late 1990s. And then, in fact, my publisher had used just last year has reissued a new updated version of it. And that looked at the role of Swiss banks in Switzerland in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you saw was that uh, even through the war, the, the, the lines of money communication were still kept open through, uh, especially through a bank, which still exists mm. now called the Bank of International Settlement, the Bank right, yes. uh, of International Settlements in Basel, which is the central banker's bank. And during the war, that was the uh, place where uh, both sides were sending messages to each other about what was going to happen after the war. You know, it was a very, in, very interesting financial institution. You know, it sounds like a conspiracy. And still theory, is today, of it's course. It's real, it's there. You know, it's got a very good website, actually, uh, where you can even download the annual reports from right back yeah. to when it was founded in the 1930s, and you can see what it was doing in the Second World War. And it had an American president called Thomas McKittrick, mm. and one of the directors was Emil Poole, who was the deputy 
uh, vice president. He was the vice president of the Reichsbank, and he would come down from Berlin and have a chat with McKittrick about what's going on. And then McKittrick would uh, pass that information on to Alan Dulles, who was the head of the American intelligence operation in Bern. Yes, so right. So this was all happening with full, you know, full knowledge of everyone on both sides. It was in both sides' interest to keep the BIS open during the war. And yeah, and it's what made me realise. You know, you think, yeah, the Second World War was about uh, obviously the tri- the struggle against a, t- a terrible genocidal evil regime. But the, the backstory there was a bit more complex mm. about the, the money movements and the gold that was moving around. And of course, they're still behind everything in the world today, really, aren't they? As uh, as t- still for the central banks. Well, c- central banks uh, are important. Yeah, I mean they're important nationally, uh, obviously, because they control the money supply in each country. So yeah, but I mean we have to be careful not to get into kind of conspiracy theories. You know, mm. have to kind of examine these it's, things rig- rigorously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's an interesting the point there, because there is there's this kind of conspiracy theory that you get in Dan Brown, which at the end of the day is just plain nonsense. But maybe it's a lot of fun. On the other hand, there is this which we might call conspiracy theory, which is about how things connect up. I suppose it's as simple as that, really, isn't it? That's what we're talking about: just how things connect up. Yeah, networks and connections are very interesting. I mean, just because. You know, but again, we have to be careful just because things are connected doesn't mean that they're manipulating things behind the scenes. But right. it's just it's good to connect, you know, to look at the connections of powerful people and powerful institutions. But it's mm. it's a hard it's a hard thing to get into because too often people slide into an automatic you know conspiracy theory. Right. But having said that, you know, the BIS, for example, does exist. Central mm. bankers go there to talk about monetary policy, which is fine because that's what central bankers do. Yes, right. They control monetary policy, but it would be good to know a bit more about what they're talking about and what they're thinking because mm. they're public servants. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that raises two questions, I think. The first one is does it all come back to money? I mean, take a, a particular um, situation that's cropped up right now that I think maybe might be interesting is um, the situation in the Ukraine. I mean, I know this is a bit random and I know we can't cover it in a round really, but um, I'm hoping that maybe some something of the importance of money and that can be illustrated by this. The talk before Christmas was over whether Russia would invade and they prepped their people at home for that. It's a possibility. But it seems to me that maybe if there are factors that would prevent that, I mean, NATO and that aside for the moment, it is the Russians don't want to be excluded. I mean, more than they currently are from the financial systems of the world, if you like. Yes, that makes I sense. think that seems to be one thing that, that might prevent that, yeah, is that if they're excluded from the financial systems, then they won't be able to trade, they won't be able to import, it'll be a devastating blow to the economy. So that, I think, is a greater deterrent than, you know, giving Ukrainian fighters on the front line the latest state-of-the-art anti-tank weapons or whatever. Because if you cut off Russia's access to global finance or even being able to globe, to trade globally, mm. then it had devastating effects. You can see that in Iran with Iranian sanctions. I mean, yes, right. you know, lots of companies won't just simply won't do any business with Iran because they're scared they'd pro- get put on an American watch list. So it has a, a very, very devastating effect. Mm. The other thing that strikes me from that is then, is it possible to democratize finance? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, well, what I mean by that is um, you just said yourself, when you look at some, I mean, how many people know BIS exists? 
you know, let alone what they do. And so there's so much goes on behind closed doors. As you said, that doesn't necessarily mean it's shady, but it does mean it's, it's hidden. We want to know more. Like, I don't think we can democratise it. I mean, right. uh, in the sense of having a, you know, a kind of bottom-up vote about right. decisions. Because yeah, yeah. you know, we have governments yeah. for that, and the government's democratically elected. Mm. But we can have a lot more transparency, that's mm. for sure. Yeah, it was probably what I should have said, actually. Transparency makes more sense. Just out of interest, how do you think things are going? Because there's an election coming up in Hungary, and there's a, it's a sort of a, well, it's slightly bizarre. You've got two right-wing candidates going up against each other, and the new guy's getting support from the left. Just yes, that's because very of, interesting because yeah. the, 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 there's a, the anti-government coalition ranges from Jobbik, which was a far-right party which supposedly has recentered itself towards the centre-right, but I, I don't really think that, you know, that much has, has really changed uh, to the to the far-left kind of Greens. Mm. Uh, the far-left and the Greens have all come together in a coalition, and the candidate they've chosen is called Peter Marquise, who's also, you know, quite a conservative, mm. uh, right-wing nationalist guy. Um, so they're all going to try and unite behind him to stop Viktor Orban. So I'm not sure how that's going to go. It's probably their best chance that they've got. You know, uh, but I, I don't know if, it, if it's going to work, though. Yeah, <laughs> I think right. everyone's wondering that. Yeah, it's only time with... Polls are showing you know, that it could still go either way. Yeah, it really will be fascinating to see how it all plays out. So what's next for you, then? I do, actually, what, when you've written this these books, do you believe in short sort of um, series rather than sort of long-running, ongoing things? Yeah, I think so. I yeah, I don't I, I don't fancy really doing um you know doing a ranking with uh well I like to have those sales and attention but <laughs> of, of many 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 books over the years. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in exploring different things. So they've been trilogies so far, two trilogies. Uh actually what's next is I'm doing a non-fiction book. I got so right. interested in what happened in Budapest in the Second World War. I realized there's not actually a book about that. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the siege of Budapest <coughs> lasted for more than three months and there was an incredible build-up to it before that. So I'm writing a book, a non-fiction book called uh, The Last Days of Budapest, Spies, Nazis, Rescuers and Resisters in a City right. of the Siege. So that's that's what I'm working on at the moment. How long might – is that coming out this year or is that – No, that will be 2023, hopefully. Right. I have to submit it this year. But of course, for now we have Dohan Street anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. How about a recommendation? It's nice to wind up with something like that. Um, of course, you're in the business of recommending, or you're in the business yeah. of reviewing books anyway, because you do that for the Financial Times. So, uh, and what's what struck you recently? Um, recently, I think one of my books of the year, I think, would be "To the Lake" by Yana Wagner, right? Which I thought was a, a really interesting book by a Russian writer about a group of Russians that have to outrun a pandemic. And it was written originally long before COVID. But what she does <clears throat> very skillfully is bring in the backstory of the people in this caravan of three or four cars and how they're all related together. You know, she keeps, she sticks to the rule of a small cast, tight right. personal connections and good backstories. Mm. And I think she does that very skillfully, something a bit different. And again, I'll put that in the program notes so people get a chance to see for themselves and they can have a look at the book. 
No, thank you for that. Yeah. That's been fantastic. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank you, Paul. My thanks to Adam Labor for a fascinating chat. Regulars will know I like to get into the themes and the real-world backdrop to crime fiction, but as Adam rightly points out, the most important thing about Dohana Street is that it's an intelligent and exciting thriller, full of local colour and fascinating characters, and whether you like a good political mystery or a really good police procedural, it's all here. Dohana Street is out in hardback and available from the head of Zeus now. Naturally, an interview, even an hour-long interview, only scratches at the surface. If you're interested in Adam Labor's writing, for some of Adam's journalism, on finance or fiction even, check out his website at adamlabor.com. I'll be back with another interview very shortly, but for now, bye, and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>